Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max. Thanks very much for tuning in for the show. We're speaking here on Friday, November 10th, 2023, just a few days after Election Day 2023, and now just under a year until Election Day 2024, which will be Tuesday, November 5th of next year. On the ballot next year will be the entirety of the U.S. House of Representatives, many U.S. Senate seats, and of course, the presidency. In New York, the entire state legislature will again be on the ballot, as is the case every two years, like with House seats. That means all 150 state assembly seats and 63 state Senate seats and New York's 26 House districts, which might again be redrawn pending litigation that is ongoing here as we speak in November of 2023. That will include more than a half dozen highly watched competitive contests that will help determine which party controls the U.S. House of Representatives come 2025. As many listening probably know, Republicans' series of wins in New York 2022 House races helped deliver a very slim majority to the GOP nationally. Now, they've had all sorts of troubles governing and deciding on their House speaker, but that's uh, a conversation perhaps for another time. After those losses in New York in 2022, uh, among others, as well as Governor Kathy Hochul's worse-than-expected margin of victory in the gubernatorial race of last year by about six points over Republican Lee Zeldin, New York Democrats and their national counterparts have been doing some reevaluation, and they are approaching 2024 at least somewhat differently to be seen exactly how they execute their developing strategy. But they've announced a coordinated statewide campaign effort led by Governor Hochul, as well as Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who will be on the ballot next year, and House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries of Brooklyn, who could become Speaker of the House if Democrats retake the majority. Crucially for those elections, there will be a presidential race at the top of the ballot, which will impact the races in unclear ways, though Democrats do often tend to do better in presidential years when voter turnout is higher, although there's been some recent discussion about whether that is still true. In several House races won by Republicans in 2022, Joe Biden had been victorious by a significant to slight margin in his 2020 win over Donald Trump in those districts. In fact, in 2022, Democrats in New York lost six congressional races in districts that Biden had carried just two years earlier. So as of today, the country is, of course, looking again at a potential Biden-Trump matchup in 2024, but it's still a year away and anything could happen, especially as Biden's poll numbers suffer and Trump faces dozens and dozens of indictment counts in a series of trials. In 2024, New York's junior senator, as I said, Kirsten Gillibrand, will be on the ballot seeking re-election. And while she will be favored, no matter who her Republican opponent is, New York Democrats have some degree of concern given what happened in 2022 and the narrower than expected margins in statewide races, as well as the losses in that series of House races, several state assembly seats that were lost uh, by Democrats and other uh, races that disappointed Democrats across the state and gave Republicans a lot of momentum. That race will be part of the national picture where Democrats will be trying to keep their very narrow Senate majority under the leadership, of course, of New York senior Senator Chuck Schumer. 
it probably cannot be overstated how much is at stake for New York and New Yorkers in the 2024 elections and the immense differences between Democratic control of the presidency in both houses of Congress versus split control versus Republican control of the presidency and both houses. All three possibilities are very much on the table here as we look ahead to 2024. And the differences include uh, determinations over a wide variety of policy and budget decisions, everything from a potential next appointment to the Supreme Court to how much federal funding for various initiatives like affordable housing gets sent to the city and state and so much more. So we are going to start looking ahead to 2024 here on the show today. New York's 26 House districts include roughly half a dozen, if not more, swing districts where Democrats will be trying to win them, in some cases win them back, in one or two cases hold on to them in order to help try to have Democrats achieve a House majority although we don't know what will happen, of course, in the other side of Congress and the Senate. All right. Joining me is Dr. Basil Smichael, Jr., a Democratic political strategist, director of the Public Policy Program and the Roosevelt House Institute for Public Policy at Hunter College. He was previously, from 2015 to 2018, executive director of the New York State Democratic Party, He's been a strategist, a party surrogate, a spokesperson. He was a senior aide to Hillary Clinton when she was a U.S. senator from New York, and he has a vast array of experience in politics and government. Basil Smichael, thank you for being here. How are you? I'm doing well. It's good. always good to be with you, sir. So we are uh, about to dig into a lot of what to look for in New York in 2024 and maybe how they connect to broader national trends and how President Biden is doing and all that. But just quickly, were there any takeaways you had from 2023 in New York or beyond? Uh, a lot of attention obviously was on a few uh, more national races or the abortion-related ballot measure in Ohio. But anything in New York or beyond that really stuck out to you about the 2023 results that we just saw? Yeah, I, I um, you know, as someone who grew up in the Bronx, I um, was watching um, that city council race in the Bronx. And this is the Christy Mar- Marmorado um, seat, which she eventually won against Marjorie Velasquez. Um, it's, in an, it's in an area that I uh, grew up not too far from. And um, I remember in some earlier conversations, since going back a year or so, um, as we were looking at some of those uh, districts being redrawn. And I was saying that in that part of the Bronx, many of the residents see themselves less a part of the Bronx and New York City and more, their, their sort of attitude is more akin to a suburban community. And um, and what uh, what I think is just just both both fascinating just from a, uh, a political policy standpoint, but also as I look to some larger trends, um, that 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 seat has gone to uh, a Republican um, for the first time. I think the New York Times said something like forty years. Um, it is it it does portend some. Um, interesting dynamics for 2024, um, but it it to me was the probably the more 
sort of fascinating race and and outcome. As we look at you know the rest of the city, there were also some challenging races for a general election, probably more so than one would have thought. Um, and um, and as I look nationally, as I try to relate that to national politics as we leave 2023 and go into 2024, um, it does present an important challenge for Democrats at the state level in terms of the state party and trying to um, reclaim seats. Clearly, Long Island is going to be very important to that because, mm. you know, as one tweet showed, and I think it was a cover of a magazine, said the last... I had a picture of a donkey and it said the last Democrat in Long Island, please turn the lights off, <laughs> you know, and it was just really, it was particularly funny uh, because I just thought yeah. about that and said, wow, like that's a really amazing trend. Um, and again, it just, it just speaks a lot to the challenges that Democrats have at the state level, but certainly nationally as they try to regain, regain house seats. Mm. Just on this city council race that we just had, I mean, clearly that report, Republican win in the Bronx in the 13th council district um, was was fascinating. And as you say, is 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 somewhat an area of the city that has uh, 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 is one of these areas that that the residents often have a little bit more of a suburban mentality to them. Another one where that's the case is actually an area of the city where I grew up out in eastern Queens that is now represented by a Republican Vicky Palladino in the city council where Two years ago, she won the seat by just a few hundred votes over Tony Avella, the former city council mm-hmm. member, former state senator. And he challenged her again in this race and she blew him away. And yep. so that was pretty interesting to me that not only was was there not sort of an effort there. And, and it's a it's a I mean, all these districts are pretty unique, but it's a unique district. And Avella is a unique candidate, not not really particularly beloved by Democrats too eager <laughs> to go help him out out there. But um I thought it was fascinating because I thought, oh, you know, someone who had held office before, there was this really narrow margin two years ago, you know, maybe uh, some more Democrats would come out to vote for him, realizing they have a shot to take the seat back into Democratic hands, but it wasn't yeah. even wasn't even close. Wasn't close. So that was really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Right. And then on the flip side of that, though, you had some Democrats who I thought would either lose or could lose or there would be really tight margins who won by wider than expected margins like Justin Brannon in Southern Brooklyn, mm-hmm. um, you know, won by a, a pretty wide margin where in a differently shaped district, he had he had barely won his past two races in sort of Southern Brooklyn purplish areas. So some really interesting outcomes in those city council races that uh, I, I don't have a full assessment on yet. But as you mentioned, Long Island, let me just jump right there. Um, (laughs) In a presidential year, do you think Democrats have a shot to take back any of these House seats on Long Island that have been, uh, you know, have moved around in the past, have gone back and forth at, at times, but Republicans now control almost all of Long Island when it comes to major offices. There are still several state legislators who are Democrats on Long Island. But um, there's the George Santos seat, which includes a little bit of Queens, uh, which obviously, if he somehow is, again, the Republican nominee, that probably favors Democrats in a big way. But Republicans are probably looking to make sure he's not the Republican nominee. And then you go further out on the island and, and it gets you know, it gets more red basically as you go further out east, but there's still right. a lot of registered Democratic voters on Long Island. What, what do you what do you see right now in those trends on Long Island? And is that somewhere where Democrats need to really be careful about how much attention and resources they're putting there 
because of the trend lines, just say some of these seats might just be gone for a while, if not, you know, for a very long time. Yeah. You know, I'm sort of one of those, one of those folks. And I, you know, had this mindset in the state party, which is that every seat should be fully contested. Obviously you're going to have priorities that may depend a lot on the trends, as you say, resources and such, but you know, I'm, I've always been a fan of consistently creating and maintaining a culture of civic engagement and activity. So it is important to make sure that resources, notwithstanding, that people believe that you're fighting for specific causes and fighting for them. So having said that, I do think, you know, the party should invest as much as they can in the races in Long Island, because it's, yes, it may be a trend that is, you know, six years or 16 years. We don't, we don't, it's hard to say at this point, but if I think about how we got here, um, I, I, I would, I would, I would attribute some of these changes to, you know, Lee Zeldin being an unusually strong candidate, um, that he was able to tap into these conversations around crime that existed through the pandemic the year you know a year or two prior right and had been bubbling up um leading into that race um and that on the flip side there wasn't a substantial um pushback um that we all kind of you know have been able to reflect on by the governor or the party that could nullify or or at least somewhat reduce the, uh, the, 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 the the way that that narrative, this sort of, you know, massive crime wave narrative that um, that uh, Lee Zeldin spun, that there was there was really very little mitigation of it. And I think that that I don't think that can continue. Uh, I do feel that some of that is baked into the 2023 results. But I also feel that the conversations around um, affordable housing, you know, in the suburbs, as well as the migrant crisis, have all, have contributed to this. So having said that, um, I don't see the affordable housing or the migrant crisis um, ebbing anytime soon. So I, I think that the language around that, that Republicans can use in these races will continue, that narrative can continue. But Democrats have to find a far better way of, of pushing back and pushing back early um, on, on some of it because, uh, if we don't, it again, you know, just from a messaging standpoint, it just, it, my mentor used to tell me when I first started in this business, this was clearly before social media, that um, that any lie, you have to correct the lie within 48 hours or it becomes the truth. And that is, you know, when you, when you hold on to that, when you really embrace that, you, you know, it gives you a good understanding, particularly when you layer social media into this. Of how important it is to push back early and and um, and with and with force. So yeah. I, I I do think we need to invest in these seats in Long Island. I think the Santos seat is the most likely to be flipped. You know, they've been you know Tom Swazi's out there uh, running. Uh, Zimmerman's looks like he's back. He's going to get these back in or is getting back in. So we'll have a, you know, there'll be primaries out there, um, and hopefully that will 
um, engender some, you know, significant activity on the part of the Democrats. Mm-hmm. If Hakeem Jeffries quickly, is... Quickly. Yeah. Oh, no, I just, we'll come back to uh, Hakeem Jeffries in a second and, and the statewide campaign. I want to get your assessment of that just quickly for folks for background. So... We're talking, I won't go through all the the swing districts in New York right now at the moment. Maybe we'll just touch on the numbers and the names throughout this conversation. But just looking at some of the recent sort of ratings from the Cook Political uh, Report, which which updates its ratings regularly and looks at a variety of different polling and other metrics to create its ratings. The New York seat currently held by Representative George Santos, which listeners probably know uh, he's in a whole lot of scandal facing indictments uh won his race on a on a whole series of lies that's new york's third congressional district which i mentioned includes a little bit of queens and a lot of nassau county now tom swazi who opted to run for governor in 2022 creating an open seat there as you mentioned is now in the democratic primary for that seat but that was already a very crowded democratic primary yeah. as you're getting at so yeah. we've already started to see one or two candidates drop out since swazi got back in and so we'll see what that shape of that democratic primary takes place but then we'll also as i mentioned be watching the republican primary there but the cook political report has the santos seat uh, district three in a lean democrat category it's, it's so it's a it's a race that uh the raiders at least at this point and again we're a year out from election day expect to move towards democrats and democrats have a very good shot there it's a race joe biden won uh by by a wide margin um in that in that district he won um mm-hmm. also on long island the cook political report has district four uh next door to it as a toss-up currently held right. by a Republican, Anthony Desposito. So that is one of several Republican-held New York districts that at least this pretty well-regarded Raider has as a toss-up. That includes New York's 4th Congressional District, the 17th, where Mike Lawler defeated Sean Patrick Maloney famously in uh, the last election, also considered a, a toss-up. That was a Biden district mm-hmm. as well. New York's 19th held by Mark Molinaro and New York's 22nd, uh, which which is a little further upstate in the Syracuse area. So and and there's others that are on this list. Um, so go ahead where you were going with, you know, Hakeem Jeffries's leadership. The governor obviously has taken uh, already a more active role in saying that she's going to participate in this coordinated campaign. There's the chair of the state Democratic Committee, Jay Jacobs. There's Senator Gillibrand. There's obviously Senator Schumer's efforts, whatever they may be, he's not on the ballot. Neither is Governor Hochul, but they're they're involved here. Say a little bit about sort sure. of where you see this effort and what it needs to do. Well, I think for Hakeem to be involved in local politics for because not because he doesn't care about local politics, but because he's a national <laughs> leader, right? He has a dash, national responsibility for uh, for the Democrats in the House. I mean, it is. I don't want to say unprecedented, but it sort of is. Um, but it suggests how important New York is to um, the Democrats' national aspirations. I mean, just consider the fact that, if I remember correctly, New York's only, New York rarely plays in national politics in our primaries or in our general election. We are, we're a big bank, bank account. You know, candidates come here to raise money all the time. But we've, I think, voted for a Republican six times since the Great Depression. So, you know, this is not a state where you would expect a tremendous amount of national attention 
to and resources to be focused. But for Hakeem to say that he wants to take a stronger role is pretty is is really significant. And I imagine that any just understanding how the party works here, you know, even though the governor is the uh, uh, de facto head of the party, right? Um, even though you do have a separate organizational structure headed by Jay Jacobs, you know, I don't think anything's going to happen here if Hakeem doesn't want it to happen. And conversely, whatever Hakeem does want to happen will happen. And that means that the resources that need to go into the districts that we talked about, the two on Long Island, including the Santos district, the Lawler district, the Molinaro district in particular, the Syracuse one is a little tougher, but I would think that, but the Lawler and Molinaro district are, you know, those are, those to me are, are better for Democrats that uh, you, he wants to put resources in those districts and recruit candidates, even put his, um, you know, tip the scales a little bit in terms of the the, the Democrat that he, that he may want to run in those seats. Um, I think all of that is on the table uh, because it because of how important this is. The other races that are uh, the other the other seats that are uh, able to contribute significantly to a Democratic uh, flip are in California, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, th- this the House being in Democratic control really centers on two states, California and New York. And when has that happened in our, you know, in in modern history? And so, um, so as I said, I think I think Hakeem's preferences here for what he wants to see get done. My gut is that it'll overshadow everybody else's including to some extent Chuck Schumer. Why is that? Because Chuck's going to have his his hands full now that Manchin is not running for re-election in West Virginia. That seat is going to a Republican. And that means that his focus now has to really shift to Texas and um, Florida in particular, but also Montana and Ohio. And so um, he's going to have his hands full. And this all of that in some ways, I don't want to say more so, but qu- quite quite significantly, really shifts even the the White House's the Biden reelects strategy going into 2024. Um, so this this the, the levels of uncertainty have increased dramatically. Um, but I, as I said, I think Hakeem will likely be. Uh, Hakeem will have a much stronger presence and and in a welcome fashion in in state politics um, and because as I said so much runs through California and New York but also you know I'd imagine just on a personal level you know he could be speaker <laughs> you know yeah and absolutely. what better motivator is there <laughs> of course yeah say say a little bit more about this question of of the of primaries and the party trying to identify the best candidate to take on a Republican in the general election, because you do have a variety of these seats where now you have a Republican incumbent. And so there's a bunch of Democrats looking around saying, well, presidential year, especially if I'm the nominee, I got a good shot to go to Congress here. You get some of these competitive primaries in your mind. Are competitive primaries in these districts a good thing for Democrats? Are there ways in which uh, Minority Leader Jeffries and others, the state party, should really be trying to identify the best general election candidate and avoid contentious primaries? What's your view on that? 
Yeah, you know, sometimes uh, when I was at the state party, you know, particularly in those upstate districts um, uh, where you have, where there are always competitive uh, uh, general elections, one of the things that I learned was that um, it's really hard to recruit candidates <laughs> for office, particularly mm-hmm. in areas where they feel that the uh, the, the Republicans and uh, so strong. Um, that it's almost a losing proposition. And but but when you go outside of New York City, you have diminishing concentrations of Democrats, but those Democrats turn out quite significantly because they know how important their vote is. Um, so I, I'm saying that to say that you know one of the that if you particularly if you look at the Santos district, one of the reasons I feel that um uh, you know, he was able to slip in there is because we did have a contested primary and a significant primary at that point. Um, and when there were so many, uh, there was so much attention on uh, the Democrats and Rob Zimmerman, who was the eventual Democratic nominee for not being able to call out Santos's lies and, and, and misdeeds. Um, how is it that he was able to do this and nobody said anything? The Democrats didn't say anything. Democrats actually did say something. It wasn't enough, mm-hmm. but they did say something. They did call attention to this. And my 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 thought on this now, as I said then, was that you know when Bob had to get through a primary first and a significant one. And so when you're spending a lot of money and you're extending a lot of resources trying to get through the primary before you really even turn your attention to a general election, which at that point in time, you know, there's so much activity in the state. And remember, even if you're a state party, but this is certainly true for an individual campaign, you've got limited time, liberal resources, limited bodies. So you have to try to use them in the most efficient way possible. Um, he, you know, it just, it just, you just wouldn't even think that someone like a Santos, his, that, that the Republicans have nominated, the lies would be that extensive. You just wouldn't even consider that. You just are running your race. And so mm-hmm. I, I imagine that particularly now when the money would, might be tight, the time, timing might be tight, the urgency of trying to get cohesive messages and narratives out there will be, um, that much more significant that if it is possible to get leaders in you know local leaders and donors to uh, to to coalesce around one or two candidates if that um, as early as possible it helps uh, it helps uh, focus the attention squarely on the Republican um, leading up to the general election I it, it to me that that's got to be critically important for uh, for Democrats in 2024. And I'm, I'm generally not one to tell people to get out of the race, but mm-hmm. I I would I would imagine that the conversations with donors, as I said, with labor leaders, with local leaders has to be let's wrap this up quickly so we can we can we can focus our attention uh, more more um, more carefully. You don't want to have Say another to, situation like Santos. And and just to give people a little, little more insights, you know, behind the curtain, when those conversations do happen, is it what a lot of times people think where you have certain party officials or, or maybe it's labor leaders or, or a group or wh- whoever it might be saying to candidates that you would like to get out of a race? 
obviously, A, do this for the good of the chance for our party to win the general election. But is there very often in those conversations a conversation about sort of what else you can help that person do in many cases? Is it sort of like, hey, let's try to plot a different election for you to run in in the near future. Hey, there might be a job for you with the the party or this elected official or that. I mean, those conversations. Yeah, yeah you can have those conversations. Sort of- sure. Yeah, no, those are those are conversations taking place. I mean, let's just let's just think about how that conversation has in an upstate district or even on Long Island and consider what to consider all of the conversations now about trying to get Biden out of the race, <laughs> right? Yes. You had you had Axelrod tweeting and then on camera um, uh, earlier in the week, I think it was earlier this week, um, saying that he should that that Biden should step down, right? So it doesn't have to be as <laughs> as in your face and as public, but those conversations mm-hmm. you know take place fairly often. If the leaders, if the you know those local leaders or the party leaders in, in particular counties feel like you know a person that somebody or some people being in the race is just going to siphon money away from the, a candidate who's starting to pull ahead, you know, resources, endorsements, like all of those things ultimately that matter to the ground game and the cohesion around messaging. Um, you know, there might be, there there are going to be some conversations, I have to imagine some tough conversations where folks say, look, we prefer if you not run now, there, there, there'll there be a time, you know, down the road where we can help slot you into this position or this or this opportunity. Uh, but we need you to step down and for the good of the party. Those conversations take place all the time. Now, whether the candidate does that is another story. But you know, mm-hmm. in, in in specific instances, if if there is an opportunity to to narrow the focus, um, I, I think those those conversations need to happen and those decisions need to get made early, um, so that so that we can you know we can have a, a stronger uh, a stronger platform. We obviously look like uh, there could be at least one or two rematches, but also a lot of these races look like they'll be different than 2022 because you had sort of uh, unique circumstances in a variety of races. You had Swazi not running, as I mentioned, in New York 3. You had um, instances where uh, Democrats were either retiring or different things happened. So you, you have fascinating dynamics where um, you might have one or two rematches, but then Sean Patrick Maloney's not trying to retake his seat in the 17th district against Mike Lawler. So, but you do have Mondaire Jones now yeah. back running uh, in that district. So you have some fascinating dynamics um, and it. questions again about sort of what the degree of those conversations will be in efforts to clear the field for non-incumbents who are running in a Democratic primary and the and the party. And this is interesting too, where you hear folks even like the sort of left-wing working families party really talking about sort of being committed to working with the broader democratic party to try to figure out the best candidates and really uh you know have this coordinated effort is pretty pretty fascinating no i think Um, it's i think it's uh, a i think it's fascinating as you say because um uh it it really does suggest how much how uh, the levels at, at which we so many parts of the party understand the importance of this particular election, number one. But also, I also think about, and I'll say this quickly, you know, when I 
what I've said in, in response to sort of the David Axelrod comment about Biden or anybody's comment about Biden and should step down. I said, you know, when I got into the party, it was the, it was much more of a machine than it is today. But sometimes the machine works, <laughs> you know, um, and I understand the need for a more uh, a more inclusive party, um, a, a party that is more small D democratic. Um, but the party itself is an organization, and I try to say that um, with all the affection for democratic politics as possibly can. It is an organization that um, that can function in a way that it can put its best foot forward in a collective, cohesive manner if it actually came together to make you know a good, strong decision that folks got behind. And you know, you may not want to use that. You may not want to scratch that itch frequently, but there are times when it might actually work to your benefit. It might That might be where we need to get to today. Say a little bit more about what the state Democratic Party as part of this coordinated campaign effort really needs to be doing that it wasn't doing in 2022. When the announcement was made formally, there were some news reports prior to this, I believe, but when the announcement was made formally earlier this year, I think it was in April, um, they, the announcement was that the state Democratic Committee announced the statewide coordinated campaign uh, being in part led by the state party under the leadership of Jay Jacobs, but then also with the leadership of the governor, Leader Jeffries, Senator Gillibrand. And they talked about a variety of components of this campaign, including more staff across the state from the party, a battleground program, coordinated media, uh, changes to how they were going to approach the voter file for outreach, uh, constituency outreach to different demographic groups, including Asian American voters, black voters, Hispanic voters, et cetera. Um, so some really interesting sort of principles and components that they laid out here that seemingly they either weren't doing previously or they were doing in a very limited fashion or leading up to the campaigns. Jay Jacobs has defended himself against lots of calls for his resignation by saying, you know, very often the leadership of the different sort of coordinated campaigns is the leadership of the state assembly Democrats does theirs. The leadership of the state Senate Democrats does theirs. And the DCCC handles a lot of the House race coordination, uh, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Um, but now, obviously, there's this coordinated campaign in New York. So say a little bit about your assessment of that and what you're most watching for or your biggest pieces of advice as they begin to really execute this now that we're under a year until Election Day. Well, to answer that question, there are two two pieces of information that are a bit inside baseball, but they really do help folks understand how parties work. Uh, to keep it as brief as, as I possibly can, the take, take your time. You have you have the you have the floor. Uh, well, <laughs> I will we say, like inside baseball here. So take your time. <laughs> so the state party basically has three bank accounts. Um, one bank account is uh, focused on federal elections, so you can raise and spend money based on federal guidelines, and only for federal seats. Um, and a weird piece of sort of uh, weird sort of quirkiness is that if you have a POM card, for example, with with state level candidates, but it has a federal candidate, you got to pay for it with federal funds. So they're very, very, it's very, very restrictive account. You have a state account, and that is to 
again, same thing, raise and spend money. But that the target for that, the use of those funds are on uh, is on any state level race um, to the exclusion of everything else. Right. And then there's the housekeeping account where you can raise pretty much uh, unlimited raise and spend unlimited amounts of money um, from that account. But it's not used to specifically support candidates. That count is what this that housekeeping account is to spend uh, for party activities, however that, you know, and, and that's defined in a certain way. The, and what that account can also be used for is, um, if I remember correctly, the support of the county county organizations as well to do party building activities. Um, so, so those three accounts are very, very specific in how you can raise and spend that money. And when I so that's sort of one dynamic. The second dynamic is a feature of the Obama era. What I've argued is that um, prior to Obama, um, President, let's say Bill Clinton, for example, Bill Clinton, when he was president, it's kind of when I started in politics. Bill Clinton would come into you know a state like New York. He would do an event that would raise money for the DNC. But the way those joint bank accounts, remember that was a big thing during the Clinton uh, 2016 race, those joint mm -hmm. bank accounts, what it allowed you to do is raise money. He could raise money for the National Party, but then there would be some that would go into the state party. So there was always wherever the standard bearer of the Democratic Party would go, there was always a... There was always, uh, and whenever he would go to raise money, there was always some for the state. When Obama came to office, that largely did not happen, in part because he he created a proprietary infrastructure, one that was really about electing and supporting Obama and Obama's initiatives. Now, in theory, I really don't have a problem with that because A, he's president, he's the first black president. I'm clearly supportive of that. But from a party perspective, that really does hinder the ability of a party to raise money for itself. Why? Because if you have new donors, new voters or lapsed voters who have come out to support Obama, their second question is, if you're asking me why to why should I support the state party? Um, I'm supporting Obama, right? Like so, so the parties, and when I got there and I would talk to my colleagues around the country when we would meet a couple of times a year as a group, you know, we would always talk about how broke we were because there was no one raising money for us, right? And so what so so this these so what wound up happening is that you had all of these other groups, these smaller organizations um that were Mimicking, and I don't mean that in a pejorative, but they were they were sort of copying the party model, but on a much smaller scale. So they would recruit candidates, they would put candidates in primaries and run them for office. They would put resources on the ground. This is like the indivisible and and arena and and, and groups like that. Nothing wrong with that. But what you ended up happening was you wound up splintering and and watering down essentially the the power of the party apparatus and the infrastructure. Um, and what that created was a vacuum uh, at the bottom of the ticket. So everyone that's at the top of the ticket is raising money because, you know, 
gubernatorial election, senatorial election, presidential election is very sexy. But when you'd get down to town council or sheriff, right, what is the, it's the party that's supposed to be helping those candidates. And when you dilute that, um, you run, that's where we run into trouble. So now if you take that and put that together with the bank account, uh, uh, bank account example that I gave or description that I gave, what, what I imagine that Jay had tried to do and is going to do with Hakeem's support um, going forward is to consolidate all of what was outside under one party structure, now, and which is the party structure. And in the ways that you can raise money into these accounts, you can hire more people through, say, you know, through sort of that general account, you can hire more staff, you can put more resources on the ground. There is a, there's always a coordinated effort in terms of the mail, because we, we as a party, you can, you give, you can give candidates discounts on their mail operation, as long as the mail is consistent with the themes and messages of the party. So you can strengthen that operation to support more candidates. You can find ways to create more joint bank accounts to, again, strengthen individual candidates. You can make sure that candidates understand who's going to be where and when and what they're talking about so there is more cohesion. So uh, that, so that would be my response, that I, that I understand what Jay was attempting to do. I think it's extraordinarily valuable. If you care about the party, it's incredibly important to, to, to support the party. And, that, and I think Jay's mindset, Jay is of that mindset, but he was also at a time of a rebuilding. Right, uh, and it, which is which is which is not easy to do when so many younger voters, in particular, are not focused on party building in and of itself. And from an organizational standpoint, they are in terms of the what it means to be a Democrat. But there's also the actual structure of the party that needs to be funded and supported. And I think that's what Jay had, Jay and Alex Wang, who's the executive director. Um, that's what they've been trying to do is to to rebuild the structure of the party itself. Well, that was both uh, detailed and very interesting, and it's a great uh, spot for us to wrap up this discussion. There's so much more to get to. I wanted to give listeners a little table setter here, a little, little curtain raiser for 2024 as we're just turning the corner from 2023 now, uh, but a lot more to discuss down the line, and hopefully you'll come back and chat more with me as uh, as 2024 unfolds. Um, a lot to think about from this conversation. And then there's there's a lot more to get to, including the importance of gubernatorial leadership in all this, even when gov the governor is not on the ballot and, and much more. But uh, Dr. Basil Smichael Jr., mm -hmm. thanks very much for the thoughts. Really appreciate your time. And let's let's talk more down the road. That'd be great. Look forward to it. Thanks very much.